Do you sense that I'm excited today? Well, I am. Well, how about you? Are you excited today to be here in the presence of God? Well, let, let's show that. Let, let me see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's what he deserves and more. We don't have enough to give him back for what he did. Am I right? He did. So, what did he do? Just go to the cross, that's all. What did he do? Just shed his blood, that's all. What else did he do? Submitted himself to horrific punishment for us, that's all. That's all he did. So do we owe him anything? One or two over there know that, he owes, that we owe him a lot. This morning, we want to concentrate on something that Pastor Charlie has been bringing up uh, repeatedly here the last few weeks, and it is about a question that Jesus asked his disciples one time while visiting Caesarea Philippi, and we're going to get to that, but the question is, but who do you say I am? We go back to John, John 1, 1 through 5, the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, who's He? The Word, Jesus Christ, that's right. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, of course, we know that this part of the book of John is speaking of Jesus as being the word, which is God. To an unbeliever, this particular scripture might seem confusing because it says that he was with God in the beginning. But then it follows up that statement by saying that all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. That pretty much tells us that in the heavenly realm, Jesus and God are synonymous. And it was only during the time that Jesus was on earth as a man that he was subordinate to the authority of the Father. It's only when he, well, let me explain this. This subordination to God is very similar to what a United States president is supposed to do while he is in office with his wealth and properties. Any position or business duties he might have had before assuming the presidency must be out of his reach until he is no longer president to prevent conflicts of interest and unfair advantages. He has to put all of that wealth aside, all of the position. He can't just say, you're fired. Although, <laughs> we know someone that does. He, couldn't, he can't just say that. He's got to 
divorce himself from what he was and be someone else. That is what Jesus did with his majesty, with his divinity, with the power of who he is in heaven. He had to put that on hold and come and be a lowly human being. Are we lowly compared to Christ? I think, I believe we were compared to filthy rags. That compared to Jesus, we are as filthy rags. Our righteousness, what we consider important, what we consider, wow, we are really something, is nothing compared to Jesus. So Jesus put his majesty on hold to come to earth and be as any other man. To a great extent, he did do this as evidenced by the fact that he was able to do all the things others were able to do, but without any outward display of his divinity. In other words, he acted as a man, not as God. Remember that many times people uh, asked him to perform some kind of a miracle. Give us a sign. Show us something other than your word. What, you know? Show us something that we can hang on to, that we can really see. Just know that you are who you say you are. Show us something. And Jesus would say, why does this generation require a sign? None will be given to them. Just for that, no sign is going to be given to them. If they can't believe what they're hearing, nothing is going to be given to them. That's pretty much where we are today. We don't, we don't see outwardly too many signs, although it's because we ignore them or we're too prideful to recognize them and accept that when things, good things happen in our lives, it's because God is answering somebody's prayer. Because he's displaying his power, but he's not putting it out there with a sign or a banner on it. He's just done it because he loves you. Because he loves you. He's answering your prayers. Yet Jesus did not come to earth to perform tricks or to dazzle the world with his power, but rather that people would believe what he said. His message was salvation, not entertainment. He didn't come to make us laugh and dance and be happy and crazy and all of that. Happiness is different than being joyful. And Pastor Charlie has been teaching on this. It's a lot different. Happiness can be a passing fancy, can be quick to come and quick to go. And we're right back to what we were before, the routine. Nevertheless, as he conducted his ministry on earth, it was evident that Jesus was no ordinary man. The wisdom he showed as he spoke was enough to astonish even the most learned. He confounded the highest ranking officials, the royalty, the religious leaders of his time, and actually he still does, doesn't he? He still confounds them. They still can't understand, Jesus died for me? Why? 
I didn't do anything. How could he have died? He didn't even know me. Know you? He knew you from the womb. He knew you before you were born. He knew you before they even thought about you. He knew you and chose you and went to the cross for you and died for you and rose again for you and is in heaven for you, waiting for you. When Jesus first asked the disciples who men said he was, they had just come from being rebuked by the Lord for their failure to understand who he was. And let's read that. It's in Mark 8, 14 through 21. Book of Mark, chapter 8, 13 through 21. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Remember, they had just come from the feeding of thousands of people. And as they had beached, the Pharisees came out and started arguing with him. And this is what the, the disciples were hearing, the argument about the, that the Pharisees were bringing up. And Jesus was so fed up with them, and he just got in the boat again and went to the other side. Now, that's where they are now. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. That's why he's rebuking us. That's why he's talking to us this way. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? You're concerned because you've only got one loaf of bread? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? What I, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said 12. Also, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? What's he talking about? He had just fed thousands of people and they're concerned that he's miffed at them because they only brought one loaf. With those few loaves of bread and the two fishes, he fed thousands and they're concerned because they didn't understand. He multiplied, how did that happen? How did that happen? Here they bring a little lunch, right? Pastor Charlie calls it a little, a little boy's lunch. I don't know how little he was, but I know that two fishes and five loaves, that would have fed one boy. That might have fed a lot of men, right? 
But that's what they brought when he said, what do we have? What do you have available here to feed these people? Jesus had performed miracles by multiplying the fishes and the loaves of bread, but they did not get the significance of this act. Instead, they were focused on what the Pharisees had disputed with Jesus instead of the awesome event of having fed thousands of people on one person's food. Thousands. The inference there or here might be that Jesus was saying, where do you think all that food came from? Don't you understand? They bring this little bit of food. He raises it and prays up to heaven. And then he starts distributing. Distributing five loaves and two fishes. Distributing what? And it keeps on being distributed. And the bigger the circle of people being fed gets, the more awesome the event becomes. And they keep on giving and they keep on giving and they keep on giving and thousands were fed. This is what our Jesus does. This is what our Savior can do. This is who he is. He's a miracle man. And by the way, let me digress here for just a moment to call to our attention the fact that Jesus was not wasteful. After the multitude was fed, they collected the fragments of the fishes and loaves probably to be eaten at a later date or to be distributed to others perhaps. The second time the food was multiplied, they collected seven basketfuls of the fragments of bread after everyone in the crowd had eaten to their satisfaction. They collected all these fragments of fishes and bread and still had seven large baskets full. Now imagine that. From this little bit of food, thousands are fed, and here they still collect seven baskets full of fragments of food to be distributed later. He wasn't going to throw them. It wasn't so that they would leave the park clean for the next group of people. It was to be given away to others that might also be hungry later or for them to eat at a later date. But here they were focused on one loaf of bread that they brought. We didn't prepare for to eat and well, they hadn't prepared for that big feast either. They hadn't brought food enough for that big group of people either. Nobody had been planning on feeding that many people. But they did, and only because Jesus was with them. They could not have done that without him. That's who Jesus is. That's who we say we serve. That man that multiplied all that food and fed all those people. There is a law, by the way, and I'm not sure if it's here in Texas or in California where, where I remember it from, but it prohibits restaurants from giving food that has been sitting for a certain length of time and instead of being thrown into the trash bin, 
Or instead of being given to people, rather, they have to be thrown into the trash bin. They cannot give it away because it might make someone sick. It's been sitting there for an hour, perhaps. I don't remember the length of time, but it wasn't like a day or two days or whatever. It was a short span of time. If it's been sitting there for a while, you can't give it to anyone. You can't serve it anymore. You can't sell it. You must throw it away. There, in the dumpster, the homeless are often seen dumpster diving, as it's called. And they try to salvage some of that waste before it does become waste. And that's what they would eat. I used to be with a group of people that fed the homeless downtown, and we would cook a full breakfast in the mornings before we would present a, a message. But uh, Jerry had had used to have this feeding program downtown, and we saw the homeless coming out of the woodwork. I mean, there were a lot of homeless people downtown, and we would feed them, and they would sit on the ground, and they would lean against the buildings or just on their own, just kneeling there, they would be eating. And if they dropped food on the ground, now just imagine, this is the parking lot. Ironically, it was a parking lot of a, liquor store and it was being used to feed the hungry but if they dropped food on the ground where cars have parked where people have walked where trash has accumulated where the wind has brought all kinds of dust and things those guys would still pick it up from there and continue eating it because this may be the only meal they got that day and they would continue eating but they can't receive food from, say, McDonald's or whoever else might throw away the food. They couldn't do that. By law, it had to be destroyed. Jesus took up the fragments, and he said, you save that. Take up the fragments. How many do we have? How many did we get? Twelve and seven. Okay. We're cooking now. Somebody's going to get fed with that. It's not going to be wasted. What a waste, huh? What I'm trying to show here is that the disciples were still not too clear on the awesomeness of who Jesus really was in spite of the healings, in spite of the teachings, and what should have been an astounding miracle when he performed them. They didn't understand so when he, Jesus, asked them in Mark 8, 27, who do men say that I am? I believe Jesus was trying to ascertain exactly what the disciples felt about him rather than the, how the people felt about his identity. He was trying to find out from them, who do you say that I am? Let's read that scripture in Mark 27 through 30. It's in Mark 8, 27 through 30. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. It's a beautiful area. We, we were there in uh, 2006 when we went to Israel. And it's a great experience, folks, because it, it gives the Bible a new perspective in your mind. When you walk in the places that were there for thousands of years. And you know that Jesus was there at one time or another. It 
changes your perspective about the Bible and the word that's in there. By golly, this is what the Bible's talking about. This is Caesarea Philippi. Yes, that's where Jesus was walking here in this particular instance. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? Why did he ask them that? Because they were the buffer for Christ. They were the 12 that were always with him. They surrounded him. Possibly or perhaps we could interpret it as they protected him. They were the buffer to keep the people from crushing him around, crushing around him. And they would talk to those that came, those that needed help, those that wanted prayer, those that needed something done, a miracle performed. They would talk to them, and so they knew what was going on, how people felt about Jesus and about them at times. So they answered when he asked them. They answered John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? What am I to you? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Peter said, you are the Christ. But Jesus had just told them a short time earlier that they did not understand that you don't understand who I am. You don't understand this miracle. And here you are concerned about other mundane things, but you don't understand who I am. And now he asked them point blank, who do you say that I am? And they said, some prophet or something. And Peter says, you're the Christ. So he understood. We're going to see later on. He still didn't. Let me give us a little bit of events that took place in plain sight, not only of the disciples, but also thousands of others who followed after Jesus. Mark 9, 2 through 7. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. A miracle took place right before their eyes. Jesus changed forms, not physical form, but aesthetic form. He became something different than what they perceived from a human being. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, it says, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. They saw something different they'd never seen before. It was happening right there in front of their eyes, and more importantly, it was being, it was happening to Jesus that took them up there. He was completely changed in front of them. What else happened? And Elijah 
appeared to them with Moses. With Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Can you, I mean, is this significant? Can you understand? Can you now understand what the disciples didn't? Can you understand what was happening there? This is not the usual run-of-the-mill everyday event that happens to people. This was something extraordinary that they had never seen before. Jesus was there in a different form, and now Elijah and Moses appeared as well, and they were talking to Jesus. What do the disciples do? Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's a good thing we came along with you. Wow, we don't know what might have happened if we hadn't been here. It's a good thing we're here. Good for you, wow. Boy, you're lucky. And it says, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And he didn't know what else to say, so he babbles out these things about, let us build a, a tabernacle for each of you. As if he'd been called to do that. You know, lighten up, Peter. This is a miracle. This is for you to see. This is for you to understand. Do you understand what's happening here? This is not just a Jesus, a man, a leader. This is not just a prophet. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Who else can get transfigured like this? Where have you seen or heard of this happening before? Nowhere. But he didn't know what else to say. They're standing there in awe, but he's got to say something. And he says, it's a good thing we came along. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Translate it. Shut up and listen. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Why do you think you came up here? To take part in this conversation? Then why aren't you transfigured as they are? You just look and listen. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Now who, whose voice could that have been? Who spoke to Moses from a cloud before at Mount Sinai where he was told to take his shoes off because it was holy ground. Who spoke to Moses then? And he's speaking again here. This is my beloved son. So, were they impressed? Do you think they would have been impressed if this had happened in your plain sight? Might you be impressed about such a sight? About being given such a blessing that you could witness Jesus transfigured and talking to two very important people in the history of Israel, Elijah 
and Moses. Not only that, but the voice from the cloud that spoke to them had to make them wonder, wouldn't it? Had to make them wonder, who's speaking? And what's he talking about? Who is it? Who is it that he's talking about? Let's look at another scripture. Mark 4, 35 through 41. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, because there were always lots of people following Jesus, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. Have you ever seen the pictures of a regatta or regatta? And they're doing a celebration. They have all of these feasts and feats and whatnot and little boats and bigger boats and whatever. They're all out together and they put flags on them and just a big celebration. Well, he had a bunch of little boats following them. That's what it must have looked like. And a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We're going to die here and you're sleeping? Do something. Well, how did they know to, to ask him to do something? I mean, they didn't understand I believe that the Holy Spirit within them gave them the wisdom enough to see that this man is special. And we're going to see just how special they think he is right here in the next couple of lines. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? Why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly again. Here they are, fearful. He just told them, why are you so fearful? And it says, and they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea Obey him. Who can this? They've been walking with him all this time. They've seen the miracles. They have seen the teachings. They've seen the healings. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it's not just because they had seen him for the first time. They've been with him. It's Jesus. And they're asking, wow, this is beyond, way beyond what we've seen so far. He just, they just keep seeing things over and over that, that are astound, astounding and outstanding. They see so much. And they continue to ask, who can this be? 
Please note verse 41 that says that they feared exceedingly and wondered who this could be that even the wind and the sea obeyed him. There's something great about this man, but this is really outstanding. No one else has done this before. Who can it be? How about today if I asked you right now, do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand, really understand as they did? Or in a different way? We're going to get to that, okay? Just file that, file that back there for, for future reference, not too far in the future. One more scripture before we bring this to the present. Matthew 14, 30, uh, 13 through 21. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. He wanted to be alone. He wanted to pray. He wanted to commune with the Father. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. They went around. If they had to go way out of their way, they went because they wanted to be where Jesus was. He's like a people magnet. Where he was, people wanted to be. And when Jesus went out, verse 14, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. He saw them. He knew there were some sick in the, in the group in the multitude, and he healed them. He healed them. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. Oh, really? We hadn't noticed. And the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Send them away. We don't have any way to feed them. There's no... McDonald's here, there's no 7-Eleven, there's no, nothing's available, there aren't any restaurants open at this place, there aren't even any people living in this place, it's deserted, remember? And they said, we don't have any way, they might turn on us, you better send them away, because some of them might be hungry by now. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away, you give them something to eat. Right. These are the guys that had one loaf before, one loaf among all of them because they forgot to bring food for themselves. Now he's telling them, you feed them. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes, sit down. Just sit down on the grass there and wait. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all, all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full, as we read before, of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So what are we talking about? 
from five loaves of bread and two fish. 5,000 men plus women plus children. The disciples who pass out the food knew exactly what happened, what happened, but didn't see how it happened. They can see all of these people ate, but where did it come from? All they knew was that a little boy's lunch was what they had, and now more than 5,000 people were fed, and they had not gotten the food. So where did it come from? How important is that to realize that there was a total lack of understanding on their part about how the miracle came about, but they knew that it happened. I don't know at what point they discerned or they knew or somehow understood or saw what Jesus had been trying to tell them about his power because he was a son of God. But I have an idea that it all came together when the Holy Spirit fell on them that day of Pentecost as they waited in the upper room. Where were they? In the upper room, they were waiting in that same room where they had been before Jesus was arrested and taken to be crucified. And he told them, go back. This is after he's risen again. Go back there and wait. Don't move from there. Don't you leave that place. Because I'm going to send you a comforter. Another one that is going to teach you. and That's going to be with you. And that's going to heal you. That's going to protect you. And it's going to guide you and direct you and inspire you. That other comforter is to take my place because I am going back to my father and to my rightful place in heaven. That's where I'm going. But I'm not going to leave you alone. You will not be orphaned. There's another comforter coming to you. So they did. They went back. Several days they were there. It wasn't like the moment they got in the door, okay, let's get kneeled down and okay, Holy Spirit, come on down. It wasn't like that at all. They were in prayer and waiting and waiting and waiting. You remember Daniel praying to the Lord? He waited 21 days and never stopped praying. And finally, Gabriel comes with a message, hey, I would have been here before, but the prince of Persia stopped me on the way and had to take Michael to come and relieve me there so that I could come and give you the answer to your prayer from God. So here I am. That's what happened here. They were waiting, waiting, and then suddenly, pow, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Like, it's just like a mighty wind and tongues of fire all over the place and coming down upon them and suddenly they were all willing to die for the sake of his name where just a few days ago they had all forsaken the Lord when he was arrested and they were hiding and were afraid that they might suffer the same fate that had befallen Jesus. And as they prayed and waited for the comforter to come, 
which by the way, they didn't know what it was going to look like or how it was going to take place. They just knew there's something going to happen and we better wait here because he said, wait. And we're waiting. You know, just the way that we obey the Lord's call, that same way. That's how they were waiting for days. But when it did come and indwell them, they were transformed into apostles just like that. You see, the three years plus that they were with Jesus was the training period for them, or a college, if you will. And the falling of the Holy Spirit on them was the graduation. That was their diploma. They immediately began to minister as soon as they received the Holy Spirit. But enough about all of that that they learned and saw and did. Just as our graduates here, when they're finished with high school and they go to college, they'll put in their four years or six or whatever their career may require. And as soon as they walk out of the college with that diploma, they can go work and use what they've learned in college. Same thing. As soon as that Holy Spirit came upon them, Peter goes to the window to talk to those people that are criticizing them out on the street calling them drunks. They're drunk with summer wine. Listen to them babbling. Well, if I only spoke Spanish or I only spoke English and I hear someone speak French, I'm going to say they're babbling. <laughs> babbling, what's he saying? What is this je ne sais pas? What is that? We don't say that. So to them, the people that spoke other languages, they didn't understand what was going on. And they said, these guys are drunk. Listen to them. But Peter comes out and says, hey, brothers, guess what? We're not drunk. We have a spirit within us now. Remember that man you sent to the cross? Remember that man you crucified, that you beat up, that would bled for us? He died on the cross for you and for us. That's why we are now speaking this way. That's why we can now do the things that we're going to do. That's why we are changed. We are something different because of the spirit that has come upon us. Thousands of people came to the Lord that day. Isn't that a wonderful how God works with big numbers? Big numbers. Let's get to the real crux of this message. What, what do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, rather? That's what Jesus asked his disciples and that is what he is asking of us today. Who do you say he is? How do you perceive our Lord? What does he mean to you? At what time in your life does, did he, or will he become the savior for whom we will be willing to die? Because they were right there from that moment. Let me ask another relevant question before we continue. Don't raise your hands, okay? But has anyone here had a prayer answered where you know that it could only have been by God's mercy? 
that whatever you had asked for happened? A prayer about a job, perhaps? A prayer about a family situation that was either intolerable or on its way to being intolerable? A prayer about sickness that required the divine intervention of God because man's attempts had not been able to solve the problem? Have you ever experienced anything like that in your life? Does anyone feel that at some point in our lives, Jesus took us out of a situation that could have proved catastrophic had he not touched someone's heart? And if so, did you give God the honor and the glory he deserves? Or did you just consider yourself lucky? Should we now, instead of Christian, call you lucky? Instead of calling you a Christian, should we call you lucky? Is God a mighty force in your life? Or is he only consulted when we need him? And, when, and then we feel that he needs to let go now. Okay, I'll take it from here, Lord. That's good. You did good. You, you do good work. But I'll take it from here. I can handle it now. You can go back to heaven. It's similar to when we get a, a, a car, you know, a flat, flat tire, and, and we don't, or I pretend not to know, we don't know how to change it so that someone else will come and help us and change that tire. You know, I don't want to get my hands all dirty. But they come and help us, and as soon as they're finished, they, wow. Can I, can I pay you something uh, for that? And, you know, it takes a long time to get the hand out. The, the guy is waiting. Okay, well, let's see if he is going to pay. Um, can I help you with that? You know, can I give you something? Well, take it out. Let me see what it is. <laughs> but we say, well, thank you very much. That was wonderful help. Thanks for helping me. Uh, I can take it from here now. I got to drive off and go to the movies. That's how we treat Jesus. We see him do the miracles in our life. He brings comfort, he brings peace, he brings healing, he gives us a job, he leads us to where we need to be, and then we say, okay, I'll take it from here. You don't have to hang around anymore. Is that the way we view God? Because if it is, that's a grave mistake, and it needs to be corrected. The things that disciples saw and heard are recorded for us so that we can also see our Redeemer, our Lord, and our Savior, not as an equal, but as far superior to anything we could ever become. Nevertheless, Jesus loved us so much, he went to the cross in our place. Yes, Jesus, who fed 5,000 with just a little bit of food that was multiplied, it is he who asks today, but who am I to you? The Jesus who restored sight to the blind asks, but who am I to you? The Jesus who, as part of the Trinity that created the universe, asks, but who am I to you? The Jesus that selected you, 
to be called out of the darkness into his kingdom on earth asks today, but who do you say, who do you say that I am? What is your reply? Are you going to tell that Jesus that you'll pray about it when he calls you to serve him? Are you going to tell him? Will you tell him to let you check your agenda to see if there's any free time you can give him to do his will because he's calling you to serve him? Are you ready for the day when you are called out of this life to be received in heaven and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you sure that's going to be uttered about you? Am I, all I'm trying to accomplish today is to take us out of our comfort zones and bring us to the reality of how we really feel about our relationship with Jesus. Are we truly complying with the new commandment Jesus gave the disciples in John 13, 34 through 35? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have loved, love rather for one for another. And also John 14, 21 where Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me, he will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. As our busy schedule allows it, allowed us to do this as a way of telling God that we love him. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, not the guy that carries a big piece of gold and on him are the Ten Commandments and that makes him a super Christian. That just makes him a jewelry wearer. If he doesn't live by those commandments, the importance of doing this is because in verses 23 and 24, he tells us, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, who's we? And the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Has he come yet to you? Is he living there with you today? He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I don't speak on my own. I speak only what he tells me to tell you. I urge you to put a stop to, your, to any complacency or procrastination and start to treat Jesus as only he deserves to be treated as our savior, our redeemer. If you already do this, okay, then just remember that in the book of Mark, Jesus said in Mark 2, 
17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come for those who are already doing everything they need to and are assured a place in heaven. In fact, you already have the address, so all you have to do is leave it as a forwarding address once you leave this earth because you know where you're going. You're assured already, so keep on doing what you're doing. I came for those other ones, the ones that are lost, that are confused, that need me. That's who I came for. I'm trying to encourage those who, like me, are sinners and need a little prodding now and then to get us back on the right track. Start today to help those who are in need and who you can help. Start to care for those who are sick or hurt as the Good Samaritan did when he extended a helping hand without having to be told. It wasn't because he had to help, it's because he got to help, because he was able to help and did. Start today to do what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28. 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not going out there on your own. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. He kept telling the disciples, don't be afraid. Why are you fearful? Why are you lacking in faith? Go out there and do things because I am going to be with you. You're not going alone. I'm not just leaving this to you by yourself. I'm not burdening you. My yoke is easy, he said. That's why I'll be there because I'm going to help you carry the stuff. I'm going to help you through that hard path. I'm going to help you through that difficult problem. I'll be there. My love, my name, my power will be with you. Be strengthened, be encouraged, but stand up and do something. It's what he's asking us today. Who am I to you? Am I someone you can trust? That's up to us, folks. Is he someone that can change our lives? You bet. But do we know that? Do we really feel that? Are we living in such a way as to say to Jesus, I know that everything you've told me is true, Lord. I love your word. I trust in you. I want your love. I want to change this life. Get rid of all the negativity in my life, Lord, for only you can do that. And you and the Father come and dwell within me as you've promised in the book of John. Just as you promised that you would, do it, Lord. And let me let me be changed and let me help others and let me do just what you're saying here to teach others to observe all things as you commanded me to do. 
You know, those, those kids that are running the VBS here this summer. I said, they're in their early 20s. They're two young people. They're just married. And they are hot for the Lord. And they want to lead those little children to the Lord as well. And they want to encourage them and fill them with the word of God. And all they're looking for is volunteers. Volunteers. Are we going to say, let me pray about it, Lord. I'm not sure yet if I can be a volunteer. What is it going to take? Effort. What is it going to take? Time. What is it going to take? Commitment. What is it going to produce? Enlightenment. Joy. Comfort. Satisfaction. All of the wonderful attributes that God possesses will be poured out upon you as a blessing, as a thank you for loving God back as he has loved us. Amen.